Coming up on Technation, animatronics for social good. Aaron Horowitz and Hannah Chung, the co-founders of Sproutel, designed My Special Affleck Duck for children with cancer. We'll hear about their journey, about the needs of treating children with cancer, and how the ducks have interquackability. Then on Tech Nation Health, the disease which one-third of people worldwide suffer from, allergies, and how the search for a new drug helped patients with a very rare disease, Sjogren-Larsen Syndrome. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Often attributed to the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan is the quote, you're entitled to your opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Turns out in this day and age, the battle is over facts, which is an easy way to get your opinion verified, validated, spread, and solidified. It doesn't matter who's being accused of creating fake news, which in itself is creating fake news. The existence of any untruths does the damage. Invent facts, sway opinion, affect the actions of unwitting individuals. To be clear, this is not just an American issue. French President Emmanuel Macron spoke of it during his campaign, promising to ban the deliberate spread of misinformation. You see, Macron was the target of misinformation. He had to fend off attacks, accusing him of having a secret Caribbean bank account. And like Hillary Clinton, his campaign's email and other documents were hacked and then released just days before the election. The group which hacked him was linked directly to the Russian government, and Macron is out to stop it. But how? How do you do that without compromising freedom of speech? The very idea that creating a law which outlaws misinformation is immediately on thin ice. For who is to decide what the truth is? If you believe something with all your heart and mind and soul, is it true? Well, it's true for you. And even if you assemble a committee of good and true citizens, how can they know? Take the idea of a single truth, such as whether or not climate disruption has been significantly accelerated by human behavior. And despite all the scientific proof, any number of smart people refuse to believe it. Once the committee or agency or whatever is given the authority, the power to decide what is and is not misinformation, the problem is created once again. And even should the committee be stacked with well-meaning people, consensus is not truth. But on simple items, there could be at least some censure. Take, for example, how many people were in attendance at the 2016 presidential inauguration versus in 2012 or 2008, or about tweeting facts which can easily be disproven. Perhaps simple corrections could have an impact on the whole. But be clear, there's more to it than that. You see, interfering in elections is fast becoming a parlor game. 
In 2007, some 10 years ago, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks released damaging documents directly affecting the outcome of the presidential election in Kenya. The point here is not whether the information was true or it was misinformation, but rather that there is now a serial quality to the act of interfering with significant elections. In the case of WikiLeaks, this is in countries not their own. It is a powerful reward to sway the outcome of any presidential election, and it appeals to those who seek to upend authority for its own sake. By the time you get to any national election, all candidates are indeed powerful. So no matter the result, the ability to jumble the candidates will have appeal to a number of individuals, and that's all it takes. And if individuals can upend elections, so can competitor countries. Whether it's a few or an entire nation, there will always be some who believe that chaos in the world is a great outcome. How we deal with this, or don't, will no doubt affect our individual and collective futures. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, creating a duck which moves and responds and ultimately helps children suffering from cancer. My special Affleck duck is no less than animatronics for social good. Then on Tech Nation Health, working on the disease which one-third of people worldwide suffer from, and how serendipity brought relief to patients with the rare disease Sjogren-Larsen Syndrome. I spoke with Aaron Horowitz and Hannah Chung, the co-founders of Sproutel and creators of My Special Affleck Duck, at CES 2018 in Las Vegas. I had discovered that they met and started working together in college. Yes, we did. Um, both Aaron Horowitz and I both went to Northwestern University, and we were studying uh, mechanical engineering at that time. Aaron actually just transferred from Rice University, and I was in the beginning of my sophomore year in undergrad and about to launch uh, Design for America, which is a nonprofit that I co-founded that uses design thinking for college students to learn and all different majors will work together on a project that really matters in the society. And I was looking for a very passionate person to bring in in our early team. And Aaron and I are taking on the intro to industrial design class design together. Design 307, yeah. And Aaron had <laughs> the energy that I have never seen in my life and thought he was the right person to bring on. And that's how he started and just worked on many problems as together, worked on many projects together in Design for America, strategized many things. Um, of course, later down the road, Aaron kind of left me and made up his own major called Mechatronics and User Interaction Design. But we still stayed in the same engineering school. It but was what, forgiven. Stay in engineering. Yeah. <laughs> but what's really special was um, when we were working on DFA together, the project that we worked on. DFA. Yes, Design for America oh, together. Okay. The first project that we worked on together was Jerry the Bear. 
And that's where we realized, you know, we have immense amount of passion around helping kids with illness. And our first project that we worked together was Jerry the Bear. And Jerry the Bear is a bear uh, for kids with type 1 diabetes to learn about how to manage their health. So the bear has type 1 diabetes. So the idea is that kids will do medical play with Jerry to learn about how to check their blood sugar level, give insulin, or even learn about uh, what is about healthy diet uh, around that management. And um, even though we don't have type 1 diabetes ourselves, we have other personal stories that really inspired us to work on that. Um, Eric can share more about his stories, but in my case, my father has type 2 diabetes, and it was a very stressful time for our family. But what I've learned from watching him coping with his conditions is that you know, managing health can be a very isolating journey, but if you bring mobilized people around it, it can be very empowering. And that's what I learned and found my passion to help other people to have the support that my dad had. And Aaron can share more about his story, too. Well, that's one thing I wanted to ask you, Aaron. It's like not everybody understands this sort of uh, specialized major uh, you created, but it's incredibly relevant to what we're talking about today. Tell people what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So I like to say that mechatronics and user interaction design is kind of like the study of how people play with robots. Mechatronics is the design of electromechanical systems. So think about everything from robotic arms to robotic toys. And user interaction design is really looking at how uh, we as people engage with the technology around us and how to design interfaces that are natural. Well, I think about Disneyland and the Hall of the Presidents, whatever it is, and these presidents are talking, you know, and there you have all the animatronics, but they discourage you from engaging <laughs> with the presidents in the hall. <laughs> when you're engaging, what does exactly that mean? You're picking it up? You're What is it? Yeah, so everything from picking something up to talking to it. For example, if if these devices have sensors, engaging with those sensors. And so to give you a really tangible example in our first product, Jerry the Bear, which is a teddy bear for children with type 1 diabetes. It has sensors all around its body that enable children to uh, give the teddy bear insulin, to feed it a healthy diet, and to learn all about how diet and exercise affect your blood sugar. So Jerry started out actually as a very kind of uh, mechatronic product where kids had this real tactile play. Um, and evolved over the years as the technology that kids were using changed. So that kind of deals with this, this interface component of it. We saw that kids uh, began using smartphones to communicate and coordinate care with their parents because new sensors came out called continuous glucose monitors. So we kind of redesigned Jerry around a smartphone app that engages with mixed reality with a stuffed animal. All of this really fits into that domain of how we interface with technology, um, but it's a really broad spectrum when we talk about what it means to engage with technology. And it changes over time, obviously. Absolutely. New tech, new engagement. Now, I understand, I guess you were sophomores someplace in there when you first met, mm -hmm. and you got so excited about doing all this stuff, by the time you got to your senior year, you kind of phoned it in. <laughs> much to your parents' chagrin. <laughs> How did you finish your senior year? We started working more and more on Jerry the Bear, this kind of extracurricular project through Design for America. And it was the thing that took up 90% of our time, but that we 
uh, didn't count towards any of our course loads. So uh, Hannah and I actually decided to um, do what we called kind of a trial period. Um, we had a great mentor in Providence, Rhode Island, um, that we met through the Dell Social Innovation Fellowship. Uh, his name is Alan Harlem. He was the director of the Swear Center at Brown, their Center for Social Entrepreneurship. So Hannah and I thought to ourselves, okay, what would it be like to spend a few months just working on Jerry? Um, kind of like a test run for what it would be like to work together at a company. So we decided, hey, what if we moved to Providence, Rhode Island for a semester of school? We sent an email to our mentor, Alan. He said, come live with me. I won't charge you rent. And so we moved into- <laughs> Music to a student's Yeah. <laughs> we moved into uh, Alan's attic. But what happened was this big decision. How do we finish our degree? And we actually had an incredibly supportive dean, Dean Atino. And we went to him. We said, look, we're kind of at a crossroads here. Either we drop out of school or we figure out a way to finish. And he said, we're going to figure out a way so that you guys can graduate. And we had incredibly supportive professors and um, who have gone on to become mentors who Skyped with us. So we would have a class over Skype. We did all these independent studies. And so we were able to finish our course load uh, while we were actually participating in a business accelerator. Um, we graduated from the business accelerator and from college within a few weeks or a few months of each other. Uh, the deal that we made, though, is that we had to walk at graduation. So we came back at the end of the year and we walked with the rest of our class. That's great. Did you bring Jerry the Bear with you? We definitely brought our then prototypes with us. <laughs> we actually, yeah, I, I remember I symboled Jerry the Bear. So uh, when we walked up to get our diploma, I knelt down on one knee and I held Jerry up like uh, his, his dad does in The Lion King. <laughs> yes. uh, and Jerry received the diploma. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny. It's people think that these difficult things, they appear difficult, you know, require very advanced degrees and many years. I mean, a lot of it is motivation and getting out there and doing it. Now, that was your first thing. And right here today, we have this charming fellow, my special Affleck duck and a company, which we call Sproutel. And so tell us how you got from graduation, your parents were very proud, to now we have my special Affleck duck. So when we developed Jerry the Bear, we took this really iterative design process and we worked hand in hand with kids. And what this means is everything from Hannah had this brilliant idea, actually, that in order to better relate to children and conduct these interviews, we would dress up as teddy bears and we would wear bear suits and we would go to conferences <laughs> dressed as bears. And so the development of Jerry the Bear, we actually played with over 350 children and created 29 different iterations of the bear before we ever shipped a product. So uh, Jerry became really a case study of what we call a patient-centered, empathy-driven design process. And that is the secret sauce of Sproutel. Um, we realized through Jerry that these types of tools to connect with and to provide companionship, education, and comfort to children are not just limited to kids with type 1 diabetes, but have really a, a greater purpose and an ability to serve many, many more children. So uh, we founded the company of Sproutel to conduct this type of patient-centered design. We call it a patient-centered research and development workshop to continue to design tools like Jerry. And we were really fortunate when we came in contact with Aflac and learned about their mission and their commitment to childhood cancer. And I think the genesis really was saying, can we do something similar for kids with cancer? Can we bring the Aflac duck to life in a way that can comfort children, that can help them cope 
with um, what is an average length of treatment of a thousand days. Aaron Horowitz and Hannah Chung are the co-founders of Sproutel. Aaron is the CEO and Hannah is the chief creative officer. Together they've created Jerry the Bear for children with type 1 diabetes and now my special Aflac duck for children with cancer. You know, there's a lot of question marks along the process because, you know, children with type 1 diabetes, they are very special and what they're going through is very stressful. But kids with cancer, what they're going through in the hospital and their treatment journey, they're they're very sensitive and it's a type of people that we have never interacted before. So even about, you know, what kind of etiquettes do you bring in? How do you word your questions to families and kids or even the wide range of age that kids have? You know, how can we best distill the insights that will inform us to create a product that really resonates with them? And I think what Aaron and I and our team have realized is we have to do our ethnographic deep dive very well and uh, consider all the variables. Like, are we interviewing all kids in different races? Are we interviewing equal number of boys and girls or different genders or even people from different economic backgrounds? You know, do we have all the insights? So... What has been really amazing is we have been working very closely with Affleck and Affleck Cancer Center, and the champions there really got the concerns that we have brought up, and they worked really closely with us to bring the best representation of all kids possible. So along the process, we have interviewed over 100 family members from all ages of kids to parents and siblings also, and then interviewed a ton of uh, medical professionals, I think over 35 of them, uh, to really understand what are the key issues that they face and what are the things that families or medical professionals wish they had. And we spent about three months very in-depth to distill all those insights. And uh, what we have done is we will create uh, visualizations to best capture what are the emotional journeys to communicate those insights? What are the mind maps or emo- key emotions that both parents and children face? What are different? What are similar? And all of those showed us that, you know, distraction therapy is very helpful and therapeutic play or even coping techniques, there are ways for kids to, you know, cope with their emotions and their journey. And what we've noticed that Kids with cancer, their journeys are all different. So it's really hard to make individualized product that matches exactly with them. But the emotional connection and that comfort is something that all kids need. So that was a really big insight for us to, you know, find that one thing that makes my special Affleck duck special. And it has been a really awesome journey to develop this product. Well, I'm looking at my special Affleck duck because I haven't actually named my special Affleck duck yet, but everybody gets to have their own name. Mm-hmm. And uh, is he about just under a foot high? You're very accurate. He's just about 11 inches tall. 11 yeah. inches, <laughs> almost a foot there. And white furry and a plastic yellow beak and plastic web feet. And it, 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 you might think, oh, it's be very light, but but it's heavy, like it weighs like a, like, you know, you pick up a real puppy compared to you pick up a stuffed puppy. It's like, this weighs something here. Absolutely. Yeah. The uh, the duck itself weighs in at about four pounds, uh, which is right around where a real duckling might weigh in at. Um, we find that the weight actually changes the way that kids interact with the duck a little bit. It makes them treat it as something that is a little bit more precious and a little bit more 
I don't want to use the word special again because it's called my special Aflac duck, but it, it makes it something that they're not going to pick up and throw across the room. You know, um, it makes it something that you would treat similarly to the way that you might treat your puppy or your pet cat. Now take us through the paces here. Absolutely. So my special Aflac duck was designed really off of a few founding insights. So as Hannah said, we went through this really deep and in-depth ethnography process to distill out what are the key emotions that these families are feeling, what are the key problems they're facing, and how could we use play to help? So the number one problem um, and real insight that we saw is that kids lose so much control throughout their cancer treatment process that they gravitate towards play patterns that put them in control. For example, the most requested toy at the Aflac Cancer Center is Legos among boys and girls because you get to build and create your world. You get complete control over it. And so when we look at the features of the Aflac duck, that's the lens that we look through. So for example, medical play is one of the main things you can do with it. The duck comes with a chemotherapy port. You attach the chemotherapy port to the duck. It acts a little bit apprehensive. And then it has a naturalistic vibrational heartbeat and it nuzzles you as you pet it. And this kids can control. When they get their chemo, their duck gets chemo along with them. Another feature are what we call feeling cards. So the duck comes with seven different discs, mad, scared, happy, silly. And when you tap these discs to the duck's chest, it behaves in those ways. So children's ducks feel the same ways that they're feeling. And kids get control. If I'm afraid, my duck can be afraid with me. If I'm happy, my duck can be really happy with me. And when we talk to child life specialists, they have this really incredible way that they'll introduce the duck and use these tools for kids before procedures that are stressful, like a port access, um, which is the way that chemotherapy is applied intravenously. So for example, a child life specialist will walk into a room with the duck and say, how are you feeling today? Or how are you feeling now before your port access? And kids will look through the cards and maybe select sad or scared, and they'll tap it to the duck's chest. They'll say, okay, well, how do you think your duck feels after it goes through our coping plan? These are plans that child life specialists develop with kids um, to relax them. And we have a card that's it's a, it's a calm emoji face, and they'll tap that most often to the duck's chest. And that actually triggers a mode where the duck takes deep breaths. And it has uh, an animatronic animation. So you breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth, and the duck actually turns to one side, pulls its head back, breathes in through its nose, and then exhales, uh, opening its mouth. And kids actually follow along with this animation. They say, okay, that's great. Now, do you want to try accessing your duck's port? And they'll take the medical port, they'll put it on the duck's chest, and the kids will hold it, they'll feel the vibration. They say, well, do you think you might be ready for your port access? So that's just kind of a thin sliver of how all of these features come together um, in concert to really provide support and comfort to children. Now, I understand you have duck-to-duck communication. How does that work? So duck-to-duck communication is, you can imagine when two ducks are in close proximity, they will quack at each other. And (laughs) (laughs) We only have one duck here today, so I'm taking your word for this. So you can imagine, uh, imagine you're in a hospital. And for kids, they're in isolation in a hospital room for a long time. So they might miss their friends or meeting new friends can be very difficult because all kids have very intense chemotherapy schedules. So you can imagine if two kids are walking along the hallway holding a duck and ducks are in close proximity, 
dogs will crack at each other. And that's a, we imagine that would be a way for kids to bond and say, you're not alone in the chemotherapy journey. There are other kids that you can support each other. So that insight really inspired us to create the feature for the duck. And apparently it's also light sensitive. Yes. Yeah, the duck has a number of sensors that make it really environmentally aware. One of the, those sensors is a photo sensor. It's right in the back of the duck's head. And the duck actually has a whole different set of gameplay and programming if it wakes up in a light room versus a dark room. And this is because children actually become very light sensitive when they take certain types of chemotherapy. So if the duck wakes up in a dark room, its lights are dimmed um, and it's quieter because we do not want the duck to be disruptive. And that's just some of the ways that there's a little bit of intelligence built in just naturally into how the duck responds and interacts with children. Now, while there, it's a furry guy, hi, duck. <laughs> it's like we're talking about him and <laughs> instead of to him, <laughs> sort of impolite. But at any rate, the, uh, uh, it's furry, you know, and these things get dirty. You know, how do you deal with that? So the duck skin is removable. That is one of the concerns that we have seen from medical professionals that in the hospital, uh, being able to clean the duck with different germs uh, in the hospital and things like that are really important. So we have created a special skin. It is patent pending where medical professionals can easily remove the skin really quickly and you can put it in the, wash, the washer and uh, clean it in a, like a regular uh, clothing item. You can put it back right away. So when we, in our testing sessions, when we interviewed childlike specialists, they thought it was really easy to remove and put it back on. And they've mentioned that sometimes they have to clean even a plush animal they might be using for five times when they see patients or even other toys. So they see that removability and easy to wash is a really big feature for them. Then they were very excited about it. Okay, so I'm dying. Turn this puppy on. I guess it's a duck. Okay, see. Ooh. <laughs> now we have these discs here, and as you say, they emote different feelings. Can you use one of those so we can see? Of course. Um, I'm going to make the duck feel nauseous by using this nauseous card. So That happens a lot in cancer treatment. Yeah, and in testing, we've seen kids using this card pretty often too. So tapping it on the duck's chest. And now underneath uh, the duck's fur... He actually has five capacitive touch sensors. So what I'm doing now is I'm actually petting the duck. And this is a way of comforting the duck when it's in these states. So on his cheeks, underneath his wings, and down his back. So even though the duck might feel nauseous, kids can feel like they're helping. I can't stand it. Let's make him happier. Yes. <laughs> You know, I think duck feeling silly might be a good mode to try. Right. So I'm going to use a silly card. <laughs> wow, that's pretty great. Now here is the, the catheter for the uh, chemotherapy infusion. Does that make noise or are you just... Yeah. So now that's the little more serious. Yeah, and, and what that was was kind of the duck being a little apprehensive. And one of the really cool things about the duck speaking in quacks is that it allows children to project language onto the duck. 
I'm speaking with Aaron Horowitz and Hannah Chung, the co-founders of Sproutel and creators of My Special Affleck Duck. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, working on the disease which one-third of people worldwide suffer from, and how serendipity brought relief to patients with the rare disease Sjogren-Larsen Syndrome. Stay with us. You are listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Aaron Horowitz and Hannah Chung, co-founders of Sproutel, about my special Affleck Duck, designed and built for children being treated for cancer. Hannah and Aaron are continuing to demonstrate. So we have actually seen child life specialists. When the child attaches the port and the duck goes quack, 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 they say, well, what do you think the duck just said? How do you think he's feeling about that port access? And they can answer and really ascribe feeling that kind of hints to a deeper meaning of how the child is feeling. So I'm going to tap the calm card to the duck. And this is a very special card because it also introduces deep breathing to kids. Ah, yes. Ah, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm just fascinated because there's so much to see. I'm sorry, the listeners can't see everything that's going on here. But you can hear uh, it, the suggestion of all the, all the various things this wonderful duck is doing. The last one I'm going to try is what we call a spaceship card. And this is from an insight that kids sometimes want to escape the hospital and explore new places. So this card is a way for kids to mentally escape the hospital and explore different places. So let's see what happens when we tap the, this card to the duck. And so now we've been transported to a garden. Um, 
We've seen a lot of families use tools like white noise machines as ways of calming children down before these really stressful events. And um, one of the things that we didn't mention is that the duck actually comes with an app. Um, the app is free, and one of the things that kids can do in the app is build these what we call soundscape planets. Each planet is a different world that kids, again, that feeling of control, they can customize that world to have the peaceful noises that they want and that they want to hear. Uh, and so this is one of the ways in which uh, the duck helps kids cope, um, particularly right before some of these really stressful events in their chemotherapy. Now, I would immediately try to name the duck. <laughs> Do all the kids name the ducks? When in our testing sessions, we had a range of different ducks from popular things, I think, was quacky, quackers, candy, Mr. Duck. I think one kid, uh, child even named Affleck. It's one of, the, <laughs> one of the names. So we have a range. But, you know, when in our testing session, we actually ask a question often before we introduce our prototype we kind of introduce the duck and say, the duck needs a nickname. Would you give a nickname to this duck? And that question helps kids immediately bond with the prototype and kind of feel also feel comfortable interacting with the prototype and throughout the testing session. And one thing just to add to what Hannah said, one of the really interesting things has been how many young children understand the word prototype. It's really phenomenal. We'll go in and we'll say, this is a prototype. Do you know what a prototype is? And we have a little five-year-old saying, yeah, it's the first version of something. <laughs> it's just the cutest. <laughs> Technology has totally infiltrated everyone here. I understand there are 16,000 children diagnosed with cancer each year. How do you anticipate introducing a child to one of these? Because of the fact you don't just, here's your box, figure it out. And, you know, we're talking very sick children. Do we have a sense for how quickly they can pick up on all the options that are available? It's been really phenomenal, actually, to go into kids' rooms during this testing. Because, as Hannah said, we've tested already with over 100 families. And so often, and especially as we built higher fidelity prototypes of the duck, we'd go in and we'd say, this is a companion that has cancer just like you. And we'd watch them play with it. And kids pick it up so, so quickly. But to build on that, we've designed really simple and straightforward packaging. The goal is that children receive these at point of diagnosis. And so right away, looking at the box, you can see how it works. You can see where to tap all of the different feeling cards. And pretty quickly, as soon as you turn it on, it starts reacting. And kids love finding well, where do I touch on the duck to make it do certain things? You know, where are its secret tickle spots? Um, they adapt to it so, so fast. And along with working out how to introduce it to a child, you still are in prototype phase. What testing do you plan to do here? Absolutely. Uh, it, later on in February, we're going to go uh, into a pilot feasibility study. Um, we're going to use these ducks at the Aflac Cancer Center um, with a group of children and look at the effectiveness of the, of the duck at reducing stress, particularly before uh, a port access, um, which we know from all the testing that Hannah and I uh, and the rest of our Sproutel team have done at the center is just so scary for kids. Great. And I have one more question. I see our little duck here has a, uh, has a backpack. 
<laughs> what is that about? <laughs> the backpack is a way for kids to store all the accessories the duck has. Um, you can put the uh, backpack on the duck's back, and it will hold. It's a way for uh, kids to make sure that they don't lose their accessory parts. Great. Okay, so get the get those loops around those wings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Aaron and Hannah, thank you so much for coming in. Please come back and see us again, will you? Thank oh, you. Do. Thank you so much. Aaron Horowitz and Hannah Chung are the co-founders of Sproutel. Aaron is the CEO, and Hannah is the chief creative officer. Together, they've created Jerry the Bear for children with type 1 diabetes, and now My Special Affleck Duck for children with cancer. More information about My Special Affleck Duck is available at affleckchildhoodcancer.org. More information about Aaron, Hannah, and Sproutel is available at sproutel.com. That's S-P-R-O-U-T-E-L, sproutel.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today on Tech Nation Health, a treatment designed to address a medical condition which affects one third of all humans. That's right, one out of three people have a particular medical condition in varying degrees. So while you're thinking about that, It's interesting to note that the same drug compound, which was specifically designed to relieve that condition by complete serendipity, turns out to be effective in treating a very rare genetic disease, which heretofore has had no available treatments. It's called Sjogren-Larsen syndrome, and we'll talk more about that later. Now let's get back to the disease, which one-third of people worldwide suffer from. I couldn't begin to hazard a guess. It turns out the answer is allergic conjunctivitis. Dr. Todd Brady is the CEO of Aldera Therapeutics. Oh, it's such a common disease. There's so many people that that have this disease, and you know what they suffer from is ocular itch. Their eyes itch. One-third of people, one out of three. Absolutely. It's one of the most common diseases that have been described. In fact, I think many people have this disease, and they don't even know it. But if you look around in a large public place, a lot of people are itching their eyes, and it's They're rubbing their eyes. because of allergic conjunctivitis. Yeah. Now tell us, what does that disease mean? Well, it's allergy, which means they're allergic to something. And there are really uh, two kinds of, of allergens. There's the kind that we call seasonal pollens, mostly trees and grasses and so forth. Ragweed might fit in that group. And then there's perennial, the things that aren't seasonal, your cat your dog, dust, things that happen all year long. Life. (laughs) Sure. So between the two of them, uh, there's a lot of people that are allergic to them. And in the eye, allergy is manifested primarily by itchiness. That is a very good clinical surrogate of the disease. How bad is the disease? How bad do your eyes itch? There's also redness. There's some swelling. There's tearing. So the red, teary, itchy eye generally is allergic conjunctivitis. I never have itchy eye. You're talking about it. My eyes are itching. Right. <laughs> There's some suggestion here, but you don't have to actually suggest it. The people who have it know it. They know it. I have a mild form of this disease, and it's not fun. I mean, imagine that 
You're constantly rubbing your eyes. The itching helps temporarily, but it's sort of like eating a jar of cookies. It feels good initially, but then you think, oh, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> it just hurts a little bit the afterwards. Itch, itch, scratch cycle. <laughs> Tearing can drive people crazy. If you have too many tears, it's hard to see. Uh, you're always wiping your eyes. You need a cloth. So it can impact the quality of life quite dramatically. Now, we know that allergies cause it. Mm -hmm. What can you do about it other than just try to cure the allergy? Well, there's two main approaches. One is preventative. You can avoid the allergen if possible. Hard to avoid dust. Hard to avoid your cat or dog. So that might be a problem. Seasonal allergens are a little easier to avoid. Keep your windows closed, run your air conditioning, use an air filter, don't go outside in that particular time of year that's most bothersome to you. The other approach is using a drug, and most of the drugs used today are antihistamines. Turns out that the itchiness, the redness, the swelling, the tearing, initially after exposure to an allergen is related to something called histamine, which is released. There are cells in our tissue that, that hold histamine inside. Sometimes if you suffer from allergic conjunctivitis, exposure to the allergen leads to release of histamine, and voila, you've got, you've got itching, you've got swelling and tearing and so forth. So antihistamines are drugs that bind to the histamine receptor so that when histamine is released, nothing happens. It doesn't affect all these clinical Takes symptoms. all the histamines away. That's right. That's right. Or at least it makes them inoperable so they can't cause these annoying symptoms. But wait, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> there's more. There's more. I, I love to say that the, the field of allergy is so sleepy because antihistamines have been around for a long time. And they work pretty well for about two-thirds of the patients. They work pretty well. Uh, people have taken Benadryl for years, right? They've taken antihistamine eye drops for years and by and large, for two-thirds of the population, it's just great. Hunky-dory, no symptoms, that kind of thing, are easily controlled symptoms. The challenge is there's about a third of people with allergic conjunctivitis that aren't responsive optimally to One out of nine. One out of nine in the U.S. More than 10%. I, I see you multiplied one-third well, by one-third. Yeah, yes, right that's 11%, there. right? I learned that in math. It, anything over nine, 11. They, so, don't do, they, they don't respond with taking the antihistamines. They don't respond optimally, so they still have some residual symptoms. And here's the reason for that. Histamine, if you're exposed to allergen, you walk outside, you have a grass allergy, you get it in your eye, you know, at about five minutes after that, histamine levels peak inside your eye. And that's when the itch comes. That's when the swelling inflammation. After about 10 minutes or 15 minutes, histamine levels drop. And the histamine that's there is less effective because your receptors sort of downregulate. They, they become less stimulated and so forth. So the histamine response is acute. It's, it's basically five minutes, 10 minutes. Maybe a little bit at 15 minutes, but after that, for people that still have problems in their eye, it's not histamine. It's the after effect of histamine. It's inflammatory cells, white blood cells coming into your tissue. It's cytokines and other mediators, proteins that, that sort of carry on the inflammation, and that's what we're working on, which to date, no one has ever really focused on before. We call it the post-histaminic phase of allergic conjunctivitis. It sounds technical, but it's really a late phase 
uh, allergic response that never has been addressed before. Is this where the aldehydes come in? This is the aldehydes. Yes. This is the aldehydes. This is the aldehydes, or at least a lot of that late phase post-histaminic uh, allergic response is due in part to aldehydes. So what's become known in the, in the last decade or so is that aldehydes are pro-inflammatory. They are the body's flares that send out the signal to generate inflammation, part of which can be allergic inflammation. The thing is, they happen after histamine. So when you're exposed to your grass outside or your tree pollen outside or whatever, your dog, your cat, whatever causes allergy, histamine starts. It goes up at five minutes. It comes down. But the, then the aldehydes begin to get released, and they trigger a whole new series of inflammatory events that lead to prolonged symptoms in about a third of these patients. And our drug, the drug we're working on, traps aldehydes. It doesn't work on histamine. It works after histamine has stopped working. Aha. Uh -huh. And that's what's so interesting about our approach. Now, where are you in the, in the great arc from lab bench <laughs> to registered product? Phase one, phase two, phase three, where are you on this? Oh, it's such a great story. I mean, the company was started in 2004, funded for the first time in 2005, an idea on a napkin, literally. Maybe there wasn't even a napkin. But the idea of trapping aldehydes, that aldehydes are bad, let's build some molecules, some drugs that bind them up, and let's see what happens. Um, here we are, what, 12 years later? We've uh, finished animal testing. We've finished phase one, which is safety in humans. We've finished phase two, which is initial testing in patients. We've got good responses. And now we're moving to the final phase of clinical testing, which is phase three. And we're hoping that can be begin at the end of this year, early next year. And so it's showing response now. It's showing response. You know, the challenge is we have to fit our drug into an antihistamine world. And by that, I mean everyone's focused on antihistamines. And for years, they've worked and they've been great and people have responded to them. But no one's thought about what happens after the histamine response in many of these patients. And uh, testing a drug for, in a new paradigm and a new phase of the allergic response requires some new methods and new ways of thinking about what's meaningful in clinical trials and what isn't meaningful in clinical trials. So heretofore, we've tried to fit ourselves in the antihistamine box in terms of clinical design, in terms of clinical endpoints. No more. So we're moving. Gloves are off. The gloves are off. We're, we're doing something different and new and meaningful to a huge population. And so we're going to try and change the paradigm a little bit, which, you know, a new mechanism of action sometimes deserves a new way of clinical testing. So how is it different? Well, the uh, itch. So itch is a great way of assessing the clinical effect of a drug in allergic conjunctivitis. It's what we call a surrogate for disease, right? How well someone, um, how much someone itches, how well itching is reduced after, after drug administration is a good surrogate for how well their disease is being treated. There are more things than itch in allergic conjunctivitis, but itch turns out to be a very good way of assessing the effect of a drug and the severity of a disease. Patients rate itch on a scale from zero to four. Mm -hmm. Four being severe, zero being I have no itch and everything else in between. And so 
uh, there was a model developed uh, many years ago. It's been used for almost all allergic conjunctivitis drug approvals to date, where uh, you give patients a drug, you wait a little bit, and you put allergen in their eye. Literally, Literally. insert allergen. Stick it right in there. And of course, they have this big Response. <laughs> inflammatory response. I, I can't imagine and doing they it say, personally. Why did I agree to this? Right. That's the next thing they say. Right. I'm not getting paid enough, right? Yeah. It's probably what they say initially. Um, uh, the antihistamines do a good job of, of controlling itch five minutes or so after that exposure. But it's the phase of itch, the phase of inflammation after 10 minutes or so that really isn't affected very much by antihistamines. And in these patients that are not quite happy with antihistamines, they have this resi- these residual symptoms, that's where we come in. And so testing the late phase of itch, where itch levels are lower, I don't think it requires a new clinical trial or a new paradigm or a new surrogate, but what it requires is a new way of looking at the data. So sure, you want to be statistically better than vehicle, but absolute levels of itch reduction when itch levels are lower later on in the inflammatory response may not apply as they would to high levels of itch in the very beginning five minutes after right. allergen exposure. Right. So you're actually treating a different stage here. Right. Exactly. And But if you're one of those people for whom the histamines don't take it all away and you still have that residual itch, how long can that itch last? Oh, We've studied it out for three hours. I've seen papers longer than that. And it becomes, it sort of morphs from frank, I really itch, to I itch and it's a little painful. Or I itch and my eye doesn't feel right. We call it ocular malaise, which is a fancy term for doesn't feel right. And that can go on for hours. Hours. Yeah. That's really debilitating. It is. That constant constant itch will, uh, will get to you. I think what's interesting about this is that by total uh, just fluke, you actually are now working on a rare disease. Right. So when we we first started um, in this company thinking about aldehyde traps, inflammation was sort of obvious to us because it's been known for, for decades that aldehydes lead to inflammation and trapping them might diminish inflammation. And there are many diseases we could work on. We started in the eye. Allergic conjunctivitis is one. Uh, anterior uveitis is another, a rare autoimmune disease. Dry eye disease, which is very common, also has an inflammatory component. But one day we were looking uh, in the scientific literature uh, for something in particular. And lo and behold, completely by chance, a disease popped up on our computer screen called Sjogren. Larsen syndrome. Sjogren-Larsen syndrome is an extremely rare condition uh, that happens to be caused by aldehydes. And the reason we know that is because it's due to genetic mutations in an enzyme called fatty aldehyde dehydrogenase. And that caught our eye because the whole goal of that enzyme's life, that protein's life, is to get rid of aldehydes. And, and it's mutated. It's, it's dysfunctional. It's not getting rid of aldehydes. It's not getting rid of the aldehydes. So here is a disease, Sjogren-Larsen syndrome, that's caused only by aldehydes. That's the one single biochemical issue in these patients. They accumulate these fatty aldehydes. And we thought, 
Eureka, here is a great disease for us to test because our drug does one thing. It traps aldehydes. These guys have one problem. It's aldehydes. So it's a nice match with drug and disease. So what happened next? Well, we looked at the author of these papers in the United States. The, the, the primary author was a fellow named um, it's a fellow named William Rizzo, Dr. Bill Rizzo. And uh, we called him up. And we said, Dr. Rizzo, you don't know us, but we came across several of your papers describing the, the genetic and biochemical basis of Sjogren-Larsen syndrome. And we think we have a cure for your disease. Okay. <laughs> Not the disease that he has, but the disease that he treats, so that he sees. And, and he paused. I'll, I'll he never forget up. this. He paused. <laughs> you know, I don't think people say that to him every day. And he said, he said tell me how it works. <laughs> and so we did. We said, you know, we, clearly this is an aldehyde disease. Our, our drug traps aldehydes. It sequesters them. It, it leads to their degradation. So it takes aldehydes out of the system, these toxic aldehydes. And then, you know, he paused again and he said, how soon can you send me some drug? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which was great. I mean, that, that response right there says a lot in terms of a, a key opinion leader's enthusiasm for your approach. Um, he said, I have some cells from patients, some skin cells, and I grow them in an incubator. And they're diseased because the skin cells lack the enzyme that the rest of the patient lacks. And I'd like to test your drug on these cells. So we sent him some drug. The tests were positive. Uh, fast forward a year later, we ran a clinical trial, a phase two clinical trial, where we put six patients on, on drug. This is a skin disorder uh, primarily. So we tested them topically with a sort of a cream. So six patients got the drug cream and six patients got a vehicle cream, that is cream without the drug in it. And the six patients on drug all got better. They all improved and not so with vehicle. And there was a statistical difference even with six patients per group and how much better the drug did versus the, the non-drug. A non -drug. real win. A real win, especially for, for people that don't have any options, right? There's no drug approved for this disease. And because the skin uh, condition is so bad, uh, many of these patients spend hours in the bathtub. Uh, softening their skin. It's a scaly Getting condition. Getting some kind of relief. Right, right. And you can imagine that's not a fun way to spend your life uh, no. sitting in a bathtub for, for hours a day. So it's so gratifying for us to have stumbled across this disease that's directly related to the mechanism and activity of our, of our drug, especially a disease that doesn't have any therapy. So even if we're a little bit right, we can make a major impact on these patients' lives. Now, that's a rare disease. Very rare. Under Very the rare. Orphan Drug Act, they should be moving you right along, aren't Right. They? So we just received um, orphan drug uh, uh, designation, uh, which is a real win for us and a real win for the patient community because you're right. It speeds things along. Now, if that's approved for this orphan drug, mm -hmm. does that equate to approval for it being in general use? Well, I think that the, the initial approval um, – uh, down the road would be just for Sjogren-Larsen syndrome. But the point you raise is a good one. Maybe there are other skin diseases that are related to aldehydes. Maybe there are inflammatory skin diseases that are related to pro-inflammatory aldehydes like psoriasis or atopic dermatitis or eczema and so forth. So there's, there's quite a few diseases that 
we could potentially treat that are skin diseases and, and maybe related to aldehydes. Well, Todd, this has been terrific. I hope you come back. Keep us updated. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Dr. Todd Brady is the CEO of Aldera Therapeutics. Its ongoing efforts in allergic conjunctivitis, Sjogren-Larsen syndrome, dry eye syndrome, and retinal disease can be found on its website, aldera.com. That's A-L-D-E-Y-R-A, aldera.com. Developing new pharmaceuticals is risky business. For every nine compounds which show promise and enter phase one testing with the FDA, only one ultimately makes its way through all three successive phases and is approved and registered. That's one out of nine, taking 12 to 15 years and an investment of over $1 billion for a single successful drug. Thus, rare medical conditions like Sjogren-Larsen syndrome can't begin to justify attention from an economic viewpoint. But from a societal and ethical viewpoint, these patients deserve our best attention, and here is where the U.S. Orphan Drug Act of 1983 plays a role. This act granted special support for the development and manufacture of medicines for conditions which affect less than 200,000 Americans. In the case of Sjogren-Larsen syndrome, only one country, Sweden, has actually measured its prevalence, where it stands at one instance for every 250,000 people. Should that measurement hold up in the United States, that would predict only 1,300 patients, well under the 200,000 patients required to qualify as a rare disease, making it rare even among the rare. Aldera further maintains a global patient registry for Sjogren-Larsen syndrome with specific information for patients and physicians on its website. More expansive information on this and other rare diseases can be found online at the U.S. National Library of Medicine, part of NIH, the National Institutes of Health. This includes parental inheritance patterns, clinical trial data, and patient support and advocacy services. For Technation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotechnation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.